and singing. Let's open our Bibles tonight to the book of Judges, chapter number 15. Judges, chapter number 15. We uh, began last Sunday night a little series on donkeys in the Word of God. And uh, you may say, well, preacher, why in the world would you want to preach on donkeys? Well, if you had to look in the mirror and see what I have to see, uh, you you know that it would encourage you sometimes, just know the Lord could use even a donkey. Amen. Uh, but we also, we gave some reasons, uh, last week, and I, I don't, I don't have time to go through all of them and preach my sermon too, but we talked about the stubbornness of a donkey, the service of a donkey, the strength of a donkey, the sure-footedness of a donkey, the stamina of a donkey. These are all reasons that donkeys, uh, well, not stubbornness. Stubbornness is something you've got to overcome if a donkey's gonna be useful. And that's sort of how it is with me and you too, amen? Uh, all, all the things that we can do for God, we can't do until we've submitted to Him. I, I like what the preacher said this morning. There's a difference between surrender and submission. Amen. Uh, we've got to submit before we can be useless or useful. Amen. And uh, so he gave, uh, we gave all these varying things. Now we talked about the substitute of a donkey. A donkey in Israel uh, could could be redeemed. It could be purchased, not have to be killed as the offering of the firstborn, because God saw value in its life, not in its death. God wanted its service. God didn't want its substitute necessarily. Uh, so a, an Israelite could redeem that donkey. Uh, how did they do that? Well, a lamb had to die in its place. Amen. And that's just like it is for you and me. If God's going to use us, we have to be born again. We have to recognize, see that the lamb died in our place before we can be redeemed. And then we talked about the selection of a donkey. Uh, three kings in the Old Testament rode into Jerusalem, or, or three kings in the Bible rode into Jerusalem on donkeys. Uh, Solomon rode in on a donkey. David rode in on a donkey. And praise the Lord that the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus, He too rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. So the donkey is the chosen steed of kings. Amen. It's what a king in peacetime would choose to ride upon rather than upon a uh, great and glorious war horse. So I think it's a pretty good thing to be a donkey, if I'm being honest with you. If I can be used the way the Lord used some of these donkeys, I'll think it's real good. Amen. And so I want us to preach on another one of these donkeys tonight. Last Sunday night we preached on God calling a disturbed donkey to speak. And that was the donkey that Balaam uh, the prophet rode upon. Well, here in Judges chapter 15 we find another donkey. And I want to see how God uses this donkey uh, in His cause, in His will, and in His work. Let's begin at verse number 9. Judges chapter 15, verse number 9. Uh, we're beginning sort of in the middle of a story, but this will give us enough to, for us to understand what's transpiring here. Bible says, Then the Philistines went up and pitched in Judah and spread themselves in Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why are ye come up against us? And they answered, To bind Samson are we come up, to do to him as he hath done to us. Then three thousand men of Judah went to the top of the rock Edom and said to Samson, Knowest thou not that the Philistines are rulers over us? What is this that thou hast done unto us? He said unto them, As they did unto me, so have I done unto them. And they said unto him, We are come down to bind thee, that we may deliver thee into the hand of the Philistines. And Samson said unto them, Swear unto me that ye will not fall upon me yourselves. And they spake unto him, saying, No, but we will bind thee fast and deliver thee into their hand. But surely we will not kill thee. And they bound him with two new cords and brought him up from the rock. When he came unto Lehi, the Philistines shouted against him. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. 
And the cords that were upon his arms became as flax that was burnt with fire, and his bands loosed from off his hands. He found a new jawbone of an ass, and put forth his hand, and took it, and slew a thousand men therewith. Samson said, with the jawbone of an ass, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of an ass, have I slain a thousand men. And it came to pass, when he had made an end of speaking, that he cast away the jawbone out of his hand, and called that place Ramoth-Lehi. And he was sore athirst, and called on the Lord, and said, Thou hast given this great deliverance into the hand of thy servant, and now shall I die for thirst and fall into the hand of the uncircumcised. But God clave in hollow place that was in the jaw, and there came water thereout, and when he had drunk, his spirit came again, and he revived. Wherefore he called the name thereof in Hakore, which is in Lehi, unto this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines twenty years. Let's pray together. Lord, we do love you and thank you for this time you've given us this evening. Thank you again for the man of God this morning, for the message that I believe came directly from you. And Father, stirred my heart and the hearts of those that were uh, here and present in it. I pray that that work would continue in the coming days and weeks and months and years. And Lord, throughout our life, that, that message would have a lasting impact. Uh, Lord, I pray also for the message tonight. May you take your word and minister it to us. May you speak to our hearts. Make us more into the image of Christ. We'll be sure to thank you for it. Lord, we do love you. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Now, when you study through the Old Testament, I have found that me personally, and there's probably people would have a different opinion about this than me. Hard to imagine anybody would have a different opinion than me, but it does happen occasionally. Amen. Uh, but uh, for me, typology is one of the richest studies in the Old Testament. To see the pictures that God painted in the lives of other people that point us towards His Son. And certainly this passage that we have read this evening is rich with typology. We could see in it uh, a picture of the jawbone being a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Samson, a picture of Israel as a nation. I think there's probably an argument to be made uh, that Samson can be a picture of Christ here. And the jawbone itself, a picture of death. I think all the names that are here are fascinating. They all tell their own story. The name Lehi means jawbone. In other words, it was associated with this great act that transpired on this day. The place where this happened was all about what happened here. Kind of like how we talk about Golgotha, the place of the skull. We talk about Calvary. If you say Calvary, it doesn't matter where you're at in the world. If you say Calvary, people know exactly where you're talking about because it's associated with an act, with an event. That transpired, that event sort of of took over any geographical uh, meaning or any geographical emphasis uh, that we would associate. If you said, uh, what is Calvary? You wouldn't say it's a hill in Jerusalem. You'd say that's where Jesus died. Amen? Well, if you said Lehi in this day, uh, you uh, said, what is Lehi? Uh, People wouldn't have said, well, that's a location in Judea. They would have said, that's where Samson killed the thousand Philistines with the jawbone of an ass. So uh, it sort of just took over everything else. Uh, The rock Edom is interesting. The name Edom means a layer of wild beasts. And I think that pictures the Lord Jesus and Him conquering death for us and Him entering into death's domain uh, and Him entering into the land of the dead. Uh, We could talk about Ramoth-Lehi. That means the height of a jawbone or the raising up 
of a jawbone. And we may say a word about that here in a little while, uh, but certainly I believe there's, if the Lord Jesus is Samson, and if the jawbone is death, then I th- certainly think it's significant that Samson takes that jawbone and wields it. And that's what the Lord Jesus did. He took hold of death. Amen. And He wields it. Now, He's the master of death. Amen. Not the devil anymore. He's the master of death. And He bends it to His will, certainly. And then in Hakore uh, is, is interesting. It means a spring of one calling. In other words, it was associated with this great prayer. Uh, that Samson prayed, and, and it's a reminder that God hears and answers prayers. And certainly when we think about that prayer of the Lord Jesus on the cross of Calvary, Father, forgive them, for they know not what uh, they do. That certainly opened forth a spring. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you say so? Wouldn't you agree that that opened up a spring of forgiveness uh, for you and I whenever the Lord Jesus in intercessory prayer said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When He cried out to His Father, a spring was open of everlasting water for you and I. But I think tonight, if we're going to study this in a way that I think is meaningful and applicable to us, I think there's some passages that I want to read in conjunction with this. That I, I, and I want to try to make a maybe a little bit of a very distinct application of this passage. And I think you'll understand what I mean uh, when we read about it. I want you to think about this jawbone of a donkey, this jawbone of an ass. And I want you to think about it in conjunction with these passages I want to read to you. And I think you'll start to pick up on a theme as we read them. But let me begin in Romans chapter 6. Read just a few verses here. I'm going to start at verse 4. Paul says, Therefore, we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, Paul says, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Over in chapter 8, Paul says this in the book of Romans, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh." but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. 
And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. Uh, Let me say it right. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body... Ye shall live. So what's the, what is the conclusion of those two passages of Scripture? Positionally, we are dead. We have been crucified with Jesus Christ. We ought to reckon that old man and that old flesh and that old body and that old inclination, that old persuasion to be dead. That's a good southern word, by the way, reckon. Amen. We ought to reckon it dead. Consider it dead. And several times Paul intimates at it there that we ought to reckon it. We ought to mortify it. He says in Colossians 3, 5, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, he's not telling you to cut off your limbs, but he's saying that the motions that are in the natural heart, whereby we are driven to live contrary to God, that flesh, that carnality, that we are to reckon it dead. We are to mortify it. We are to crucify it in our hearts and minds. Paul describes what this looks like in Galatians 2.20. He says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. Paul says there is life after mortifying the flesh. And that life is not our life, it's the life of Christ. We could sum all those passages up by saying this, that God calls every believer to crucify the flesh, to mortify the flesh, to walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. And tonight I want to call that the crucified life. I'm not the first person to use that terminology by any stretch, but I'm saying that's what I'm describing tonight is the crucified life. The life under subjection to the Spirit of God. The life that is not driven and motivated and mandated by the inclinations of the flesh, by lustful desire, by self-ambition and self-adulation and pride, but that which is submitted to the Lord Jesus, that which reckons us dead, but Him alive and living through us. And I believe tonight, if we read this passage in Judges 15 carefully, we'll find that I think we could say that that jawbone represents a lot of things. But I think tonight, for the purpose of this message, I would say this, that it reminds me of the crucified life. It reminds me, you know, that's what we've been preaching about, is that a donkey reminds us of a believer. Well, Samson, he comes across a dead donkey. And it's similar to coming across a dead believer. He finds that donkey, and it is dead, and he finds more use for it then than he did when it was alive. And it reminds me, I think, of the life that the Lord Jesus is calling us to. Let me give you a few things that might help frame this for you. There are three things about this this jawbone that remind me of the crucified life. Let me say, number one, that it was providential reminds me of the crucified life. It's interesting when you study through it, and of course, you know, funny things that you find when you're studying the Word of God. I don't know that before this past few weeks I have ever wondered how many times a donkey is referenced in the Bible. But when you're studying through and preaching through something like this, it's important to know. 
And so I've run every reference I could find on donkeys in the Word of God. And I found one in Jeremiah chapter 22. Now listen to this. This is just one verse, but it's very interesting, especially for a message tonight. Jeremiah talking about Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, that when Nebuchadnezzar came and sacked Jerusalem and took them captive and carried them away, said about Jehoiakim in Jeremiah twenty-two nineteen, he shall be buried with the burial of an ass, drawn and cast forth beyond the gates of Jerusalem. What does it mean when it says that? Well, in the Bible times, and this may be true even today, I don't know, but certainly it was true in Bible times, that it, usually if a donkey died in the midst of bearing a burden or in the midst of being used in, in a service, if that donkey died, you did not take that donkey anywhere. You didn't hold a funeral for it. You didn't dig a grave for it. You just left that donkey wherever it sort of gave out, wherever it died, you'd leave it laying there. That was the burial of a donkey, the burial of an ass, and it it says about Jehoiakim that that's the same kind of burial that he would have, that on that journey from Babylon to Jerusalem that he would die en route and the Babylonians in their callousness and cruelness wouldn't do anything. They'd just leave him there and he would lay out in the sun and the scavengers and birds of prey and coyotes and, and, and beasts and whatever they would be would come and pick at his bones and that that's how he'd die. Well, listen, there's a lot we could say about old Jehoiakim, but I'm fascinated what that tells me about this donkey. Because it tells me this, that this donkey died at just the right time, just the right place to be used in this way. It's interesting because the Bible tells us he has a new jawbone of an ass. In other words, and I'll say more about this here in a little while, but that means that thing had not been laying out there bleaching in the sun. It hadn't been out there 20 years. It had just happened. It was fairly fresh. I mean, probably within the past few days or week, this donkey had died. Think about the providence of God that here is His judge uh, and He needs a a weapon to defend Himself. He needs something uh, to save His life. And God allows days or maybe a week or two before this for a a man to be uh, leading his donkey just by right where Samson needed at just the right time, just the right place, just the right way, this donkey just kills over, dies, and God uses that to meet the needs of His servant. God had planned the place and God had planned the time. In other words, we might say this, that God had chosen that this jawbone would be used in this way. There's a lot I could say, and I hope to say it just in the preaching of the message tonight, now let me just say this, that it's the will of God that the way we live this life is, is through the crucified life. That's the way God's chosen. Hey, listen, do you remember whenever uh, the Lord Jesus was about to be crucified and uh, Pilate asked him about his, his disciples and asked him about uh, his claim to uh, kingship and his claim to the throne? And the Lord Jesus looked at him and said, if my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. They don't fight because it's not of this world. In other words, the Lord Jesus was saying, if I wanted to, I could lead an army that would march through here, that would march straight to the city of Rome and overthrow it and put the Caesar in stocks. But he said, that's not the way that my heavenly Father has chosen. He was saying the path that my heavenly Father has chosen to conquer this world and its sin problem is not by the sword, but it's by sacrifice. It's by the cross. It's not by conquering. It's by Calvary. And he said it was crucifixion was the way that God had foreordained. You know, that's true of you and I too. 
The way we defeat our spiritual uh, foes, the way we win this spiritual battle, it's not through physical weapons, it's not through swords, it's through surrender and submission and obedience to the Spirit of God. That's how God has chosen for us. It reminds me of it because it was providential. Not only that, it reminds me of the crucified life because it was peculiar. It was peculiar. I jotted these things down. Uh, Notice this. This donkey was not created for battles. It was created for burdens. But here is God using this donkey in a way in which it was not created or intended for. It is, we might say, doing something completely contradictory to the nature of this donkey. It was not created for this purpose, but God is using it for this purpose. You know, that's a, the same thing's true about you and I. God created mankind to live in this body, to live in this flesh, to live in this life, that we might be made in the image of God, that we might uh, look more and more like Jesus, that we might enjoy the fruit of creation, that we might live in perfection and harmony and innocence uh, in the Garden of Eden, but mankind was not satisfied to stay in that station. Mankind sinned, ate of the fruit, was spiraled in to depravity. And so now, what God had desired to do through the life of this body, God must now do through the mortifying of this body. Now, if we want to fellowship with God, we've got to do it at the expense of the authority and desires of the flesh. It's contrary to how He created us. It was created for burdens, not battles. Let me say this, it was more useful in death than it was in life. I don't know if Samson ever made this connection, because that would be true about Samson as well. He would kill more in his death than he ever killed in his life. I don't know how much this donkey accomplished during its life, but I know this. It sure wasn't well known uh, for the burdens that it carried. It wasn't well known uh, for the, the burdens that it pulled. It was known because of what transpired on this day, because in its death, Samson was able to take the jawbone of it and slay a thousand Philistines. It was not as useful in its life as it was in its death. That's true, you and me as well. God can't use us when we're operating in the flesh. God can only begin to use us when we mortify the flesh and start to be used and led and wielded by the Spirit of God. And we, spiritually speaking, are more useful in our, in our spiritual death than we are in our physical, carnal life. As we mortify the old man, as we crucify the old man, as we persecute the flesh, as we put it to death, God can use us. Not through talent, not through, uh, not through ability, not through uh, charisma and personality. All those things have to be put to death if the Lord is going to use us. He doesn't do it in demonstration of the power of your word. He does it in demonstration of the power of His word. He doesn't do it in demonstrations of the talents that you've been blessed with. He does it in demonstration of the Spirit of God. That's how He does it. And so we're more useful in our death than in our life. But then I would say this, it reminds me of the crucified life because it was powerful. It got the job done. And let me say this, I think that it is indicative in our society that the brand of American Christianity that is becoming so prevalent, this celebrity Christianity uh, that is so prevalent that is based not on spirituality but on talent, uh, that is based not on closeness to God, but is based on, on, on surpassing and being superlative to our peers, that type of Christianity isn't getting the job done. The world's not getting better, it's getting worse. America's not getting better, she's getting worse. The church isn't getting better, it's getting worse. 
And now when the people of God used to know what it was to persecute and afflict the flesh, used to know what it was to put aside the leisure and the frivolity of life and to give themselves unto prayer and unto fasting and unto the work and Word of God, that was when societies and cultures shook. I would say this, the crucified life is powerful. I see here that it did two things. It slew the enemy. And it has the ability. God ain't afraid of nobody singing a song. God ain't afraid of no preacher preaching a sermon. God ain't afraid of nobody teaching a lesson. God's afraid of... Uh, or I keep saying God, Satan. Let me say it that way. <laughs> the devil ain't afraid of nobody singing a song. The devil ain't afraid of nobody preaching a sermon. The devil ain't afraid of nobody teaching a class or teaching a lesson. I'll tell you what scares him. What scares him is some of God's people persecuting the flesh, mortifying the flesh, putting the old man to death, and letting the Spirit of God reign and rule in their life and in their decisions. That's what terrifies him. So I see that it is powerful. Now I want us to notice a few things this evening. And I'm going to give them to you very, very quick this evening. But I, I, I want to make application of this. How many of you believe when you, when you read that, if you squint real hard, you can see that the jawbone reminds you of the crucified life? Anybody? Raise your hand. That way I know I'm not. If, I, if I'm just preaching myself, I'll let you go ahead and go eat, and I'll go in the back and preach this message. Amen. It could just be I need it and you don't. I don't know. But it reminds me of the crucified life. Now, I want you to notice three things that happen with this, and I want us to notice it very carefully. Look at verse number 14. When this conflict begins, the Bible says in verse 14, when he came unto Lehi, the Philistines shouted against him. The battle's on. They've hollered, they've yelled, they've shouted. They're running towards him. The Bible says the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and the cords that were upon his arms became as flax that was burnt with fire, and his bands loosed from off his hands. Now, this is not terribly unusual for Samson. On several occasions, they've tried to bind him, and he's busted loose. But notice what it says, verse 15. This is what's interesting. And he found a new jawbone of an ass, and put forth his hand, and took it, and slew a thousand men therewith. Let me say a word about the crucified life picked up. The crucified life is something you're going to have to pick up. It's not natural to us. It's not, it's not the state that we just live in naturally. There are some things I have to give a great amount of attention to and focus to and, and, and I have to give a great amount of energy to. And then there are some things that are just sort of natural to me. They're almost like habits or, or, or ticks. I mean, there's, there's certain things. One of the things that bugs my wife is whistling. Sometimes I'll be walking through the house and whistling. And I don't even know I'm whistling. She'll come in there and she'll say, Shh, don't you know that baby's asleep? And I'll say, well, uh, he probably can't hear my whistling, but he can hear your shushing. Maybe you should shush quieter. Amen. But I just sort of do it instinctively. But then there are some things it takes a great amount of attention and will and discipline to do. Let me tell you something. The crucified life is not something that's going to happen just on its own. It's not just going to, something you're going to just slip into. You're going to have to pick it up. You're going to have to make your mind up that you're willing to put the Word of God and the will of God above your own desires that you're going to put away the, the lusts of the flesh and the temptations and the desires, not allow those things to rule and to reign over you. I'm not saying you won't be faced with them. I'm not saying that they're just going to disappear. But you can choose not to let them have mastery over you and instead allow the Lord Jesus to rule and to reign in your heart and in your mind. You're going to have to pick it up. But I want you to notice a few things about picking it up. First, I want you to notice about it that it was vile. It was vile. The Bible says it was a new jawbone. 
Sometimes I love the tact of the Word of God because it says it was new. Now, it's interesting. You'll find the word that's used there another place in the Bible. In Isaiah chapter number 1, verse 6, the only other place that it's found. Listen to how it's used there. It says, from the sole of the foot. It's talking about Israel's sin, their wickedness, their, 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 uh, their moral corruptness. It says, from the sole of the foot, even under the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises, and listen to this now, this is the word, putrefying sores. Putrefying sores. In other words, whenever the Bible says this was a new jawbone, it doesn't mean that it was shiny and fresh and polished. But rather, it means it was, it was stinking and rotten and vile and decaying. This was not something that had been laying out under the sun for 20 years. We see them on the cowboy pictures. They'll be riding out through the desert and there'll be some steer head somewhere out in the middle of the desert and it just looks as clean and as, as white and as dry and as, as pristine. That's not what this thing was. I mean, Samson literally probably had to walk up and pull this thing out of the skull of this rotting donkey's carcass. It was a vile thing. And let me tell you this, as far as your flesh is concerned, the crucified life is a vile thing. There's, I, I am not the type of person that, that has a weak stomach. I'm just not. But there are some things that do bother me. And uh, it's I've hunted, and of course I still fish and, and stuff like that. I, I don't hunt as much anymore since I found where the grocery store was, but... Um, <laughs> But I used to do some hunting, and, and, it, and it never bothered me to clean animals or anything like that. Still wouldn't bother me to do that, butcher a deer, uh, anything like that, field dress one. But, but I don't like them when they've been out in the sun for a while. It's pretty vile. Can I tell you a story? It's a Sunday night. You ready? We ain't even eat yet, all right? And you might not after I tell you this. I remember one time years ago, we had this old dog at the house. I, me and Brother Kerry were teenagers at this time. And uh, the, we had this old dog we called Bear Dog. And it was like half a key to half something else. But it was just a mutt was really what it was. And uh, But it was a sweet dog. And it, like most dogs, thought that the greatest expression of love and loyalty you could have towards your master was to drag something dead into the yard. And, uh, you know, dogs will do that. I mean, they'll just say, hey, you know what you need? You need a dead cat. And drag it up and drop it on your doorstep. And uh, so old Bear Dog had killed him or found him a possum somewhere. And he, he killed this thing and he, he dragged it up. And he put it right square in front of the steps up to Mom and Dad's porch. And uh, we we're still living at home at the time. And Dad came to us and he said, Boys, I want you all to go and get that possum and get it out of the yard. The dog left a possum there. Well, you know, there's three, four entrances to their house. There ain't no reason we had to use that one. So we avoided that for a few days. And uh, every time that we'd come in, Dad, when are you boys going to get that possum out of the... And I was always thinking the same. I was thinking, you know, you know where the shovel is too. Amen. <laughs> I didn't say that, but I was thinking it. And uh, But that we just left that thing there. And, uh, and it, it just kept getting bigger. You know how they do. And it just, it, it just kept swelling up. And so finally, finally, I guess dad had had enough and he fussed at us enough and, and we said, all right, we'll go get it. So we went, but we only had one shovel and there's only one possum. So how was we going to do this? Like whose job was it? Amen. And uh, uh, so I, I, I got, we got the shovel and we decided this, we're going to take turns is how we're going to do this. And I can't, I don't know if we rock, paper, scissors for it or what, how we decided, but, but it, but it was Carrie's turn first. That, that's what I know. 
And the plan was to take this thing and pick it up with the shovel and throw it into the field, right? Uh, but it's a big yard. So Kerry goes and picks it up with this shovel, and he got little girl arms, and he threw it, and it only made it about halfway. So that meant it was my job. It was my turn. So I went and got this thing, and I picked it up on the end of the shovel. And I went, I went, and I am not a, I'm not a physicist. But I think when I went back and the momentum, the inert, I don't know what happened, but I suspect the corner of that shovel caught just the right place. This possum's under a lot of pressure, mind you. And when I went to throw it, when I just, when I, when I, when the momentum went this way, that thing went, and just everywhere. I started gagging. It was nasty. I mean, it was real nasty. It was, we might say, vile. Vile. Can I tell you something? The way that you feel right now about that possum, the way I feel about that possum, is the way your flesh feels about this crucified life. It has such an aversion to this thing of mortifying self, of putting Jesus first, of living for Him, of loving Him, of ignoring and neglecting the ambitions and will and desires of the body and of the flesh and of our life, that it reacts the exact same way. It is it is literally a vile thing to it. Imagine what it took for Samson to reach down into the carcass of that donkey and pull up that jawbone. He had to need it bad. He had to want to win, win that fight bad. He had to see the value in it desperately because it was not something that he was naturally going to do. Let me say it was vile, but number two, it was vital. You know why he did it? Because it was the only weapon he had. I'd venture a guess. I don't know Samson personally. But I think I can make this, this guess. I think it'd be true of most people. Probably true of him as well. That if he had looked down and he had seen an axe and a sword and a shield and a bow and arrow and a rotting, stinking, decaying jawbone of a donkey, he would have probably picked any of the rest of them before he would have picked that one. But when he looked down, he didn't see any of those things but one. It was the only weapon he had, so he had to use it. Can I tell you something? When it comes to this spiritual warfare we're in, this battle where the devil's trying to administrate and, and, and govern our life and where the flesh is trying to kick Jesus off the throne of our hearts. This life where we're trying to live for God and do something for God, but the flesh don't want us to, but the new man does. There's only one weapon. We don't have very many available to us. There is one weapon that is vital. He said, but preacher, what about preaching? What about church? What about praying? Well, let me tell you something. If you don't have your flesh in check, you ain't going to read your Bible. You ain't going to pray. You ain't going to go to church. I'm saying before you ever pick up any of those weapons, you've got to pick up this weapon of the crucified life. You've got to mortify self. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 6, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And here's why. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, 
but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore? Now stop and think about that. He said, for, in other words, this is why we need to put on the whole armor of God. And he says it's because we wrestle not against flesh and blood. And then when he comes to the end of it, he says, wherefore? In other words, he is reinforcing. Wherefore? Take unto you the whole armor of God. In other words, he's saying, because of the nature of our enemy, because he's not a physical enemy, because he's not a tangible enemy, because he's not a visible enemy, because it's a spiritual warfare, the only weapon we got is the armor of God. The only weapon we've got is the crucified life. It's the only thing there, so you can't ignore it. It's the only thing that'll work. And let me say that, it was victorious. It was victorious. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. He says in verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh... We do not war after the flesh. Yeah, we walk, we live this life in the flesh. And the flesh can have a, an influence upon us and over us. But that's not what we war after. He says, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. In other words, the victorious life gets the job done. Uh, you say, preacher, I would never think that a jawbone could be used to kill a thousand people. Well, you hadn't met Samson. Samson was able to. When it was in Samson's hands, he was able to. What an unusual thing that was. And yet, the, the man of God, he wasn't always, he wasn't always exemplary in his character or in his conduct. But he was the judge of Israel. When he picked up that weapon, it was enough. It got the job done. The preacher, I, God can't use me. He can if you'll crucify self. If you'll mortify self. Because then it's not Him using you. It's Him using Him. Amen. It was victorious. So we see the crucified life picked up. But then, sadly, something happens. Look at verse 16. The Bible says, And Samson said, With the jawbone of an ass, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of an ass have I slain a thousand men. And it came to pass, when he had made an end of speaking, that he cast away the jawbone out of his hand and called that place Ramoth-Lehi. We see the crucified life put aside. As soon as everything's done, he pitches that jawbone to the side and says, I don't need it anymore. You know, that reminds me of how a lot of believers behave about this thing of the crucified life. Why did he cast it away? Why did he throw this thing down? Why did he not take it, run a string through it, and sling it over his back, and say, that's my weapon from here on? Well, I think I know some reasons. Let me give them to you. One, I think he cast it away because the peace had been secured. The only reason he ever picked it up was because the Philistines were attacking. And as soon as the peace was secured, he threw it away because he figured he didn't need it anymore. Boy, listen, that reminds me of how you and I behave spiritually. When we're in a mess, when there's a spiritual battle taking place, when tragedy strikes our life, when we're tempted in some overwhelming way, then we'll cry out to the Lord, Lord, I need you, and we'll get serious about God. We'll get serious about prayer. We'll get serious about the Word of God. We'll be searching that Bible looking for an answer. We'll be praying to God and begging Him uh, to change our circumstances. We'll be uh, denying the flesh. We'll be resisting temptation. But then as soon as the battle is passed... We take that crucified life and pitch it aside. Because we figure it's all done. It's all over. We don't need it anymore. I think he did it because the peace 
was secure. Let me say number two, I think he did it because the putrefaction was stinking. I, and I gotta say, I mean, just in a, in, a, in a practical way, I don't really blame him for this. First thing he did as soon as the battle was over, was he dropped that thing. He said, man, that's nasty. That's nasty. In other words, it was, it was an aversion to his flesh after the battle. The same as it was an aversion to his flesh before the battle. In fact, there's only one time we don't seem to see uh, this thing bothering Samson. And that's in the midst of the battle. Uh, Samson, in other words, it didn't change that his flesh was repulsed by that. And you know what often happens in the heat of spiritual warfare? We're willing to live that life. But the moment the battle's over, we're reminded how hard it is to live that life. That aversion, that repulsion that we initially felt all of a sudden springs back up. And we're reminded, man, sometimes it ain't fun to deny self. Sometimes it ain't fun to deny self. Hey, listen, sin has pleasure for a season. Even your Bible will tell you that. Sin has pleasure for a season. That means when we deny self and when we deny sin, we're doing it at the expense of pleasure. And we're reminded of that all of a sudden. Now all of a sudden, the aversion of that way of living starts bothering us again because the heat's not on us anymore. The peace has been secured. The putrefaction was stinking. But then let me say this, I think it's because his pride was swelling. Ha! I'm amazed at what he said. And I shouldn't be because I, if somebody wrote my name down and wrote my, wrote my life story down, then you'd probably read it and say, man, I can't believe that dummy, the things he does. I'd probably say that. We're awful hard on people that are in the Bible. We're going to have a lot of apologies to make when we get to heaven. Amen. Tell these people we should give you a little grace. But still, now what do you imagine a person would say? I mean, what an astounding thing, right? Uh, this, this guy, Samson, he, he is somebody that has, has fought in conflict before. He's a judge of Israel. And don't you imagine he would stop for just a minute after he got done killing all them Philistines and say, man, praise God, what a weird thing just happened. I mean, I killed this thousands of men. When he says heaps upon heaps, I believe it was heaps upon heaps. There's a thousand dead bodies laying in front of him. And there he stands with the jawbone of a donkey. And would you not think he would stop and say, well, praise God, what a miracle has transpired. God has enabled me to win this great victory. But instead, you know what he says? He looks at that thing and he says, with the jawbone of an ass. Heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of an ass, have I slain a thousand men. God's not within a thousand miles of His mind. Instead of looking at what God has done, He says, look what I have done. I have slain a thousand men. And He says, can you believe I did it with just the jawbone of a donkey? His pride was swelling. And it's interesting what he names this Ramoth Lehi. That's an interesting. It means it means height of a donkey, or I mean height of a jawbone, and that could mean a number of things. We really, I mean, I, if anybody tells you they know exactly what Samson was trying to say, I'll be I'll let you in on a secret. They're speculating because we don't really. All we know is that it means height of a jawbone. It could mean that he was saying this is where I raised up the jawbone and slew all these all, all these uh, Philistines. It could be that what he's saying is is that this is the epitome, this is the height of what a jawbone can do. And certainly I'd say this, it was the most famous day for a jawbone ever in history, but I really don't know what he's saying. I do know what he is saying about himself though. What he's saying about himself is I have won the victory. 
You know why we abandon the crucified life? Because we think we've got it all licked. We've got it all whooped. We're never going to be tempted again. We're never going to sin again. We're never going to fall or fail again. We don't need to be vigilant. We don't need to be sober. We don't need to watch. We don't need to pray because, man, we're awesome. We've got it covered. His pride was swelling, so he threw that thing away. And then listen to what it says. Look at verse number 18. And he was sore athirst and called on the Lord and said, Thou hast given this great deliverance into the hand of thy servant, and now shall I die for thirst and fall into the hand of the uncircumcised. Now, according to what Samson says there, he is so near death, he is so parched, he is so dehydrated that he believes he is at the, at the, the precipice, at the threshold of death. But he sure seems to have enough, uh, uh, enough saliva, enough moisture, enough wherewithal, enough strength to be able to spit out a whole big long prayer before God. You know what it tells me? It tells me this, that up until this moment, he was not feeling his weakness. I'll tell you this, that if I was where he claims to be, it kind of, it reminds you of Jacob and Esau when Esau comes in, says, I'm getting ready to die. And I'm thinking, man, if I was getting ready to die, I don't think I'd be there arguing with my little brother. I think I'd be out there eating grass or roots or whatever I have to eat to try to live. And here, Samson says, I'm getting ready to die. But here's why I think that he says this. I think up until this moment, he had not sensed his weariness. Let me say a quick word and I'll be done about the crucified life poured out. Poured out. The jawbone, the story of the jawbone has not ended. It shows up one more time. But before it does, let me just point this out, that all of a sudden we see, I wrote it down this way, we see the awakening of his weariness. So here's Samson. He picks up this jawbone. He slays all these Philistines. The battle is won. The victory is his. The glory belongs to God. But he doesn't give glory to God. Instead, he takes the glory to himself. He says, well, the battle's over. I don't need this thing anymore. And he pitches it away. And no sooner does it leave his hand, but all of a sudden, the fatigue, the weariness, the death that is right threatening his very life. It's like it ambushes him. It was there the whole time, but he wasn't feeling it until he threw the jawbone away. Can I say this? We can operate in the Spirit at a lot greater stamina and level and strength and resilience than we can ever operate in the flesh. And let me say that the moment that you throw away that crucified life will be the moment you begin to sense your spiritual fatigue and weariness and weakness. It reminds me of what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He said this in verse 8, For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. Paul says, man, it's like we just woke up one day. He says it this way, we had the sentence of death in ourselves. We had been serving God. We had been going for God. We had been living for God and, and working for Him. And then all of a sudden we wake up one day and it's like all of that cumulative weight of all of those burdens that God had been miraculously holding up off of our shoulders came crashing in in one instance. He says, we thought we were going to die. Why did this happen? I think he gives us a hint. He says, we had the sentence of death in ourselves 
that we should not trust in ourselves. Paul says when we were trusting in God, it was like God just carried that weight for us. But when we started trusting in ourselves, God said, all right, big boy, let's see if you can handle this then. And he said it was like we were crushed under the weight of all of these burdens. They were there the whole time, but when we were mortifying self, it didn't seem to bother us. But the moment that we started trusting in ourselves, then the weight of these things came pressing down. Samson, all of a sudden, the moment he pitches that, that thing away, all of a sudden now, his thirst begins to take hold. Now, his, his weakness, his weariness from the battle. I'd say it took a lot of physical exertion. Amen? Uh, listen, I, I've got worn out just trying to tie shoes before. Amen? He just got through killing a thousand Philistines with a jawbone. I'm sure he was weary. I'm sure he was worn out. But he didn't seem weary when he was holding that jawbone and saying, heaps upon heaps have I slain. He didn't seem like he was weary whenever he was fighting the battle. It was only when he threw that thing away that he gets weary. And when we turn our backs on this crucified life, there is an awakening of our weariness. Notice not only the awakening, notice the appeal of his weariness. He's talking... (laughs) in verse number 16, and he's also talking in verse number 18. Here's the difference. In verse number 16, he's talking about himself to himself. And in verse number 18, he's talking about himself to God, and he's talking to God about his weakness and his weariness. And he's saying, Lord, if you don't meet my need, if you don't answer, there's no way I'll survive. God, I need you. You know, I think that's sort of what the crucified life is designed for. We find Him speaking in verse 18, but now it is prayer and not pride because He realizes how desperately He needs the Lord. Reminds me of a time in Paul's life that he talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, He was left for dead, I believe. I I know he was left for dead outside the city of Lystra, and I believe it was then that he was caught up into the third heaven. As Paul describes, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. And he said, only God knoweth, but he saw unspeakable things. And when he comes back from that, uh, listen to what the Bible says, what Paul says in giving his own testimony in the Word of God. He says, lest I should be exalted above measure, uh, lest I should think I'm something I'm not, lest I should look around and say heaps upon heaps. He says, through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. The moment Samson throws that jawbone away, God lets him feel keenly just how weak the flesh is. God lets him be reminded pointedly just how weak, just how the arm of flesh will fail you. And what does Samson do? He begins to pray. What did Paul do? He says, for this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. In other words, this this weariness drove him back to prayer. Samson says, oh God, I need you. I thought I was the big man. I thought I was the one that could handle it. I thought I was the one that slew all these Philistines. But now just a lack of water is going to do me in. What a whole Philistine army could not. Just the fact that, I, that I'm sweating, that I'm dehydrated is enough. Just, just the weakness. What their armed forces could not do against me, the weakness of my flesh will do for them and will do to me. In other words, they couldn't defeat me but I can't sustain me. The flesh begins to give out. We see the appeal of his weariness. And then, I just want to say a word and be done. I'm going to say it about six, seven times. 
I'm in good company. Did you notice that? I, did you notice what Paul said in chapter 6 of Ephesians? He says, finally, my brethren. Well, finally, my brethren. Let me say a word about the antidote to his weariness. <laughs> God does something amazing. Verse 19, but God clave in hollow place that was in the jaw. And there came water thereout. When he had drunk, his spirit came again. He revived. The Bible says, wherefore, he called the name thereof in Hakore, which is in Lehi unto this day. There's a lot of interesting things going on with words here. Most commentators have tried to twist this passage, and really what they've tried to take the miraculous out of it in some respects. Uh, they've tried to degrade the miraculous nature, and they've tried to contradict what your King James Bible says. Uh, they say that what it should say, and, and uh, I, I've learned this, the most heretical word in any Bible commentary is the word rather. Because you'll be reading it, and every time the, it's, the King James Bible says this, it'll say, rather it should say this or that. I would say, rather we should just listen to God. Amen? But they say that because the name Lehi means jawbone, that what's really being said here is that God merely opened a fountain up in, in Lehi. I don't believe that's true. My Bible says He opened it up in, in a hollow place in the jaw. And by the way, that is two different Hebrew words for jaw and for Lehi. There's a slight variation in them. So I, I believe that what it's saying here, he opened, opened up a hollow place. In other words, probably one of the tooth sockets where that donkey had had a tooth and one of them tooths had been knocked out by some Philistine tooth. God caused water to spring forth. Now, that's real romantic, right? That's beautiful. But I'd remind you, this is the same jawbone that five minutes ago he threw down. Rotten, stinking, putrefying, maggots, flies. And now God says, Samson, you're going to drink out of it. You're going to drink out of it. Sometimes it's a bitter lesson to learn how desperately we need the Lord. And so he causes water to spring forth out of it. What's the idea here? Well, I think there's a couple things. I wrote it down this way. He still needed the jawbone. But this time he wouldn't direct it. He would drink from it. He would learn that it's not a weapon to wield, but it's a spring to sustain. Or we might say it this way. He would begin to see it not as simply a resource, but as a requirement. He would recognize that you don't wield that thing just to win the battle. You wield that thing if you want to stay alive. If you want to live. If you want to survive. If you want to thrive. You need that jawbone. You know, it's a great day in our life spiritually when getting serious with God is not just something that happens when we have hard times. But when we learn to live seriously with God. It's a great day in our life when the prayer closet doesn't become a fire bell that we run to and ring when things go wrong. But it becomes a fellowship hall where me and God spend time day to day with each other. When the Word of God is no longer just a lifeline, but it's the boat that we sail the sea of life in. It's something that we just live in and walk in. And it becomes something that sustains us, not just something that shields us. For Samson, you know what he had to learn? This wasn't a breaking case of fire thing. This was a daily thing. This wasn't a, when the Philistines are bearing down on you a thousand strong, then you need it. But it was if you even want to live, 
if you even want to survive, if you even want to thrive, if you even want to be effective, then you'll need this thing. But it won't be something you'll take and swing around and wield. Rather, it'll be something that directs you, that tells you where to stand, that tells you where to kneel, that tells you what to drink from, that tells you what you need. You know, anything could have come out of that jawbone, but water came out. Why? Because God knew Samson needed water. I'm saying this, the antidote to his weariness was that he, the, the antidote to the crucified life, or to, to our spiritual weariness is the crucified life. But it is not a, a, a sketchy, spotty, intermittent commitment to it. But rather, it's daily walking in it. Listen to what Paul said, and I've got to close here. But listen to what Paul said about his own jawbone. He said this, For this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. And He said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in mine infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches, in necessities and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Then am I strong. In other words, Paul says this, I learned that it was through that crucified life, not through great strength, but through great weakness, that God could use me. Not through pride and self-reliance and self-advancement, but through mortifying self, through affliction, through suffering, through persecution of the flesh. I learned that's when God could use me the most. When I mortified self and magnified Christ, that's when God could use me. I'd say this, Paul had learned... Not just how to wield the jawbone. He had learned how to drink from it. It was a bitter drink at times. It was a vile drink at times. But it was the drink that revived his spirit. It was the thing that gave him strength. It was the thing that helped him go on and live on and move on. And it's the very thing that will help us continue on for the Lord. It's that crucified life. Let's